Environmental Social Governance, ESG, was a growing trend before the crisis. Will it go out the window now that publicly listed companies have perhaps more things to worry about? Not according to experts who think that investors think it is of increasing importance in a post-COVID world. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me is my co-host and the National's future editor, Kelsey Warner, joining us down the line. How are you, Kelsey? Hi, Mustafa. I'm well. It's good to be here. How are you? Good, thank you. So you were um, following the Web Summit and uh, you spoke to one of the uh, ESG, the world's, I guess, leading ESG experts. Um, but kind of what, what's the background here uh, of, of why it's important now to discuss this topic? So ESGs have been, I think, on our radar most of over the last year on the podcast, particularly as we think about, you know, stakeholder investing and, you know, what it means to be a company in a year like 2020 when uh, there's just such acute pain and it seems like much of the world is broken and we need to fix it at a fundamental level. So I was interested in talking to Georg Kell, who is the founding director of the United Nations Global Compact and a pioneer on ESGs to get his, you know, get a pulse check on the state of uh, how we're thinking about environmental, social, and governance issues as we close out 2020. And, you know, what is he thinking about this as a, as a pioneer in the field and what he's seeing now? He now chairs a ESG quant fund called Arabesque that you know, routes investors toward companies that are meeting their targets on ESG performance. And it was it was a really interesting conversation on a lot of levels. And I'd just like to add that he, you know, jumped at the chance back in 2016 to chair the Volkswagen Sustainability Council following the diesel emissions scandal, which was a really high visibility uh, scandal at the time, around the time of the Paris Climate Accords. And Mr. Kell told me, you know, don't let a good scandal go to waste. And he talked about what he learned from that experience and what BW has learned. Let's hear that discussion now. So we are 20% of the way through the 21st century now, and it has been a year of reckoning. Can you run me through the path we've been on with responsible investing during that time in the last 20 years? And where are we now? Investment sustainable finance uh, has been lagging behind the real economy by almost a decade, I would say. We launched as early as 2005 uh, with former Secretary General Kofi Annan, a working group called Who Cares Wins, which coined the term ESG. And then we launched the Principles for Responsible Investment at the New York Stock Exchange in 2005. But not much really happened. Uh, financial crisis, remember, uh, finance was in a defensive then, monetary easing dominated the field, uh, and ESG issues didn't really make it to the top lines. Uh, they were a niche development by some asset owners. In 2014, uh, the first meta studies came up, uh, one done by Arabesque, the company I'm now the chairman of, uh, which established a clear relationship between good ESG integration at the corporate level and long-term valuation on the other hand. In other words, a positive connection. And that's where ESG started to take off. What to you triggered the awakening? 
enabled by three irreversible trends and factors, uh, long-term trends. One is the most important one is technology, digitalization, the ability to more accurately measure ESG and its relevance for finance, which wasn't possible before. Secondly, what we call planetary boundaries. Humanity increasingly is forced to define a new relationship with the natural environment and put a price on negative externalities. And thirdly, I think there's also a generational play in the game. Young people in general uh, demand more sustainable products and lifestyles, and so it helps to drive this change as well. So these are three universal forces which are irreversible. They play on differently in different jurisdictions, but the long-term trend is is loud and clear. It's irreversible and here to stay. With COVID-19 and the global recession, why do you think ESG will remain a priority? Well, first, already we know from the quantitative figures we have that ESG has doubled down during that crisis period. And the reason is quite simple. It's primarily technology. Uh, Everything digital has been going up everything non-digital down. COVID-19 is a great catalyst for transformation, for innovation. All corporates in the world are now basically motivated to to double down on structural changes, uh, doing modernization, moving towards decarbonization. Secondly, I think COVID also has reminded all of us that a good, healthy relationship with the natural environment is just indispensable for all our lives and for our personal well-being. So even lifestyle issues uh, uh, have been reshaped by the experience of COVID. When you say doubling down, what are the metrics that you're looking at that indicate to you that there is this doubling down? First, in the corporate world, uh, more and more companies now embrace digitalization. More and more corporates declare becoming carbon net zero by 2050. Uh, Science-based target initiatives has seen a doubling of its membership within the last year. Uh, The TCFD, the equivalent in the world of finance, is booming in all asset classes. Uh, We're no longer talking about niche developments. ESG is going mainstream. And at the core of it is, is really a question of reassessing risks and opportunities, not only through a traditional lens, but to also take into consideration these irreversible structural changes that are unfolding around us, technology, natural boundaries, governance, people's preference changes. So finance is no longer isolated in a black box, but it's now seen as being connected and related to the changing framework conditions. You mentioned Arabesque, and I want to dig into your work at Arabesque. It's a quant fund that assesses ESG data to develop investment strategies and returns for investors. So in terms of data, what are the things that, to your mind, can be measured? What are the most important parts of a company to be looking at when you're identifying progress markers? Well, the most important thing is to make sure you have good data, and that is not easy, by the way. Uh, Many corporates still don't disclose relevant information. There's a lack of coherence, consistency. Most uh, data you can buy in the marketplace are backward-looking. They're biased. Uh, They are uh, suffering from lack of comparability. Time series are not available. So you have to invest in your own data sourcing, and we have set up a huge global sourcing capability for doing so, and we rely primarily on original data, so we don't use just estimates as many others do. 
And then you have to smartly analyze the data to assess their material relevance. And that is where really the added know-how comes in. How do you assess which information is relevant for which sector in which jurisdiction? And for that, you need huge capabilities in terms of analytics. Uh, and increasingly, these capabilities are provided by artificial intelligence. We have one of the industry's leading AI capabilities in that space, and we are right now exploring how AI and sustainability information together can provide a better information. I do want to dig into AI a bit later, but I want to talk more about, okay, you're looking at a supply chain, you're looking at a headcount. How do you identify these threads? And then what kind of drifts to the top in terms of what are you paying attention to? Well, we use, among others, the U.S. has established a SASB category for industry sector-specific material relevant factors. That is one way, the sector-specific lens that matters. And in all sectors, by the way, issues such as decarbonization, climate change-related, human resource-related issues, skill levels, governance factors are always on the top. Uh, we have over 500 metrics points against which these issues are measured. The challenge then is to make sense out of it uh, and to interpret it in the right way. And that's where, as I said, you have to apply either a combination of sector and country-specific uh, angle, or you take into consideration, in addition, also the likelihood of trends that are unfolding, because it's a very dynamic world. And uh, uh, the materiality notion itself is a dynamic notion. So you are doing some sense, you are doing some signal gathering to try to understand yeah. what's coming. Very comprehensive signal gathering and then analyzing and interpreting it using sector-specific frameworks, if you so want, but also making sure that the analysis is done in complete compliance with regulatory requirements. And that is the other important dimension. The world, unfortunately, is moving in a fragmenting way, not in a um, one together. But we have different regulations in different jurisdictions. Um, in Singapore, it's very different from Netherlands, from uh, California, <laughs> from South Africa. So you have to make sure you also take the regulatory differences into consideration. You seem like somebody who believes in your core that everything is data. I very much believe that a science-based approach to many of these challenges is the only way for humanity to arrive at a rational decision-making point. Uh, we are surrounded by complex developments and trends, uh, and we can choose what we believe in, if you so want, and you can declare the truth, but ultimately the truth has to be measured against some rational frameworks that are out there. And uh, being an engineer myself, uh, I believe in a few fundamentals derived from natural science. And some of these truths are just here to stay. One is the productivity paradigm, <laughs> the efficiency paradigm, the measurement paradigm, the ability to quantify. And these are fundamental building blocks we can use in a, in a smart way. On top of that, of course, we need a, a purpose and a mission in what we're doing. We need to have an idea where we want to head, in which direction we want to go. And this is where the sustainable development goals, the UN Global Compact principles, universal norms of behavior, I think are today as relevant as they always have been, even if the political environments are not always conducive to their support. 
So is there a way in which you are incorporating anything that can't be gathered as data or is everything you're looking at and assessing ultimately data? The core is data and only data. What we cannot uh, quantify, uh, we are very careful in not making estimates or guesstimates because they always tend to be biased uh, and uh, Plenty of good studies out recently, one coming from the MIT, for example, called the aggregate confusion, <laughs> which explains in detail what it means if you rely just on estimates, uh, <laughs> you will be misled. Yeah? So rely on what you know and build on that rather than uh, catch everything you think that could be relevant, but you can't prove that it actually is reflecting reality. Okay, so give me a real world example of an arabesque assessment. Uh, one is uh, the temperature score, which measures the uh, climate footprint of companies, uh, which is based on only and exclusively on raw data, uh, reliable raw data, scope one, two, three. And uh, we do not use estimates in this temperature score. All companies which do not disclose relevant information are given a very negative score. Uh, just the assumption is they either don't want to for whatever reason or they're not yet ready. Uh, so, and we are very upfront about this. Uh, in, in some of the big global data uh, available, 80% are estimates. Yeah? And we think this is misleading. We rather use what we know and what we don't know, we assume the worst rather than uh, building in some positive assumptions which prove out to be an illusion. So a lack of transparency is given a zero. Exactly, exactly. So there's this growing awareness that machine learning can be inherently biased. It's something that data scientists have known for a very long time, but it seems to be hitting sort of this mainstream moment. So these systems, they can be racist, sexist, ignorant, if not built with a representative pool of data. How do you address that in your work? Well, in our, in the ESG world, it's very clear what the emerging preferences are. And there's always a political process around it. Yeah? We have the climate negotiations going on for decades now. We know that decarbonization is an absolute priority for humanity. So we are very confident in using decarbonization as an exclusive, as a very strong pillar, full stop. Yeah? Uh, another factor, for example, where we have no doubt the United Nations has agreed on some big universal principles, which we believe are here to stay, which are time resistant, if you so want, and which are applied, applicable across all cultures and regions of the world. The Global Compact has 10 principles. Among them is anti-corruption, for example. Yeah? And we firmly believe that such principles have universal relevance, irrespective of cultural biases or interpretations uh, so there are fundamental basic building blocks uh, that are available. I want to switch gears a little bit. Since September 2016, you've been chairing the Volkswagen Sustainability Council, an independent body that advises VW on issues of social responsibility and the future of mobility. The group was formed following the high-profile diesel emissions scandal. How is VW better positioned today than its competitors because of what it went through in 2015? Well, let me upfront say that I, in my 20 years of experience working with CEOs around the world, I always discovered that crisis is a wonderful thing if it's an opportunity to learn. So I jump on almost every crisis because <laughs> in a crisis situation, uh, 
corporate owners and leaders are willing to reimagine and rethink the core business model. Under normal circumstances, corporates are only reluctantly changing course so long as there's a profit. Volkswagen had one of the biggest crises in, in recent history. There were others too, by the way, <laughs> no shortage. Uh, but that is remarkable because out of the crisis came a total rethinking of the business model, e-mobility and digitalization including decarbonization, were recognized as strategic priorities. So Volkswagen early on invested 70 billion US dollars in 2017 uh, going into e-mobility when the market was not yet really ready to go there. Uh, some traditional competitors uh, were stunned yeah, and uh, uh, said this is the wrong decision. Uh, the market is not ready, the infrastructure is not there, the charging infrastructure, the range of the cars. But Volkswagen uh, had to do it out of the crisis to overcome because the real root cause of the diesel crisis was not the cheating devices. All automotive companies have been cheating, by the way, softly or gently, as the European Union discovered in the wake of the diesel crisis. Actual pollution levels were at least 20% higher than under standard testing models. The real root cause of the diesel crisis is the fact that burning fossil fuels for personal transport is just not the way of the future. You have to come up with a, a zero emission concept. There's no way around in the megacities elsewhere, the health issues related and so forth. So going electric with mobility was the right response to the diesel crisis. It tackles the root cause of the problem. And so the race is on now, uh, Volkswagen catching up with Tesla and setting the new course. And you will have noticed that recently a number of other major automotive companies also switched to e-mobility fully. Uh, I think in the case of Volkswagen, it was helpful that they sell 40% of their cars in China, and China aggressively has been pushing for e-mobility, uh, and that clearly helped to shape that strategy. E-mobility in the rush to zero carbon emissions by 2050, or whatever these targets have been, have been the big headline grabbers, I think, of 2020. Is mobility the leader in your mind in terms of industry to this ESG race? Who are the laggards? Who are the winners in 2020? I think there is a clear hierarchy of uh, the most cost-effective pathways towards carbon uh, neutrality. Number one is energy transformation, well-known, well-documented, uh, solar, wind, increasingly price competitive. Uh, and with it comes, by the way, electrification, because to produce power with clean energy, you have to spread the application of electricity beyond uh, households. And that's where number two comes in, transport, yeah? electrification of transport. Transport accounts for 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, it's a big chunk, uh, and that's why it's the number two on the priority list. Then comes the more expensive or not so easy to change sectors such as housing, uh, but even there you can do a lot uh, with electrification, with clean electricity, and so forth. And then comes industry, and that's where hydrogen comes in, uh, steel, uh, cement, uh, more difficult to abate sectors. Uh, and the last one often is listed as agriculture. <laughs> also, I have a slightly different view on that because uh, regenerative agriculture is big in the upswing too. Uh, and traditional analysts 
have probably not yet paid sufficient attention to uh, alternative farming methods, which are actually spreading quite nicely. Okay, one to watch for you is ag tech by the sounds, food security. Exactly. All right, my last question, thinking about environment, social governance factors, ESGs, when you are awake at night thinking about how to change the world through ESGs, how to mark progress, who does ESGs hurt and who do they help? First of all, it's a structural change issue, I would argue. And change is always producing winners and losers. We have to be aware of that. Winners are those which embrace ESG early on, which uh, see the opportunity space in offering new services and products or redesigning. Those will be winners and the laggards will lose out, no doubt, Yeah, from stranded assets to you name it. Uh, But that's, I would say, the beauty of of markets, Uh, the basic rule that governs nature, uh, adopt or die, (laughs) also applies in the business world. So I see it as a welcome uh, change. We moved successfully from from coal-fired power plants exclusively with child laborers or seven days work (laughs) uh, 150 years ago to a modern lifestyle. So we have to have the courage to keep on uh, reinventing ourselves. So uh, no doubt, overall, the net outcome is an extremely positive one. Uh, Everybody will be better off. We have a much better chance of uh, survival for humanity, if you so want, no doubt, on the climate front. But we also have much better prospects for making sure that the basic needs are met in in a more efficient way. It raises many questions, the future of work and how do we define happiness in the absence of hard labor. Yeah? So uh, uh, it raises many challenges for the future, but basically uh, we should be very proud and happy that we have the tools and the ability uh, to produce uh, more, if you so want, with less environmental impact, that we can meet most basic needs everywhere uh, and that we can design a future where, you know, the old scourges are no longer there. We didn't talk about health issues, but that goes along the same pathway. That was Kelsey speaking to Jorg Kell, who's the founding director of the UN Global Compact and the chairman at Arabesque. Uh, Kelsey, thanks for that, and thank you for being with us. Thank you. Here are some of the other stories at thenationalnews.com. December is set to be the busiest year-end on record for initial public offerings in the U.S., with DoorDash and Airbnb ready to start trading this week. UAE companies are more optimistic than their global peers about profitability returning to pre-COVID levels in the next two years as business slowly recovers. Emirates took delivery of the first of three A380 Super Jumbos scheduled for 2020 as it prepares to launch its premium economy class. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed the show, please do leave a review or subscribe. All that remains to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, and you all for listening. Do join us again next time.